Hello, and welcome again to Controversies in Church History. This is part two of Disobedient People, 1964 to 1974, our second episode in our series on the traditionalist movement in the Catholic Church. And we pick up where we left off, talking about the promulgation of the New Roman Missal in 1970 and the response of traditionalist groups uh, to this event. And so you have this situation in which there's all this chaos, liturgically, doctrinally, into which Rome drops this new missal, and this is what sort of, uh, this is going to, you know, cause the traditionalist milieu to coalesce into an identifiable group within the church. And I want to stop here, pause in 1970, the narratives, to give you an idea, there are other organizations involved, people involved in this movement besides just Una Voce. I, I, I partly focus on them because we have access to their uh, access to their you know um, to their narrative and everything and they're important in an international sense but you also have uh, you know the creation of what I might call a traditionalist sphere uh, mostly in just in terms of writing and uh, and, and different organs in the press uh, there are, are several different newspapers, journals that sort of carry this sort of critique of the new liturgy, and in general the critique of things that are going on in the church just after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, a couple I mentioned, I think, last week in the, or the last episode when I talked about the origins of this, a couple of these more prominent ones precede the council itself. Uh, in England, uh, a journal called Christian Order was founded in 1960 by a Jesuit priest named Paul Crane. It will publish numerous articles, um, especially by important writers who are important to this movement, like Michael Davies. I think it's still in existence. I think you can still order issues of Christian order. I believe so. I think they still have a website. Uh, and then Itinéraire, the uh, French journal, where Jean Madéron and Louis Saint-Laurent, two of the more prominent French critics of the post-conciliar church and the liturgy, new liturgy, will write, was founded in 1956. You have those. Uh, uh, in the European side. In America, you have, well, there's actually one other one I mentioned in, uh, in Europe, and that's uh, Approaches, which is founded in 1965, so one of the first ones, the first one, I should say, yeah, following the council by Hamish, Hamish Fraser, who was this fascinating journalist figure. Uh, it's kind of his baby. It's his lone, sort of a lone gunman. Again, convert from um, atheism, was a former communist, and he, uh, in approaches, he will deal, deal with a lot of, you know, purely secular political things, but also talk about the liturgy and the changes in the church and be very critical of it. He does an expose, for example, in the uh, early 1970s on the shenanigans at, a, at a, a seminary in Ireland. And so those sorts of things are in his remit. But you also have American uh, organs of traditionalism. The first is called Triumph which is founded in 1966 by Brent Bozell, mentioned last time, convert from Omaha, Nebraska, in fact. And he helped co-found National Review, uh, the conservative magazine with William Buckley, who, by the way, Buckley was also disturbed by the, by the changes in the liturgy, but he founds Triumph kind of as a, an alternative in some ways to to Buckley's fusion. If you know what fusionism, I won't drop that term, but Buckley tried to sort of combine Catholic social teaching with a sort of libertarian view of economics and a, a more sanguine view of American political life. Whereas a Triumph magazine, which only lasts for 10 years from 1966 to 1976, was a much more heavy Catholic critique of American society from a traditionalist perspective, also published articles about the liturgy from people like, well, someone I'll get to in a moment, Dietrich von Hildebrand, so that's uh, one way. The other major, uh, major uh, vehicle of the press for the traditionalist sphere, which is still in existence, is The Remnant, which is founded in 1967, still going strong. Uh, this was founded, God, I can't remember the names, unfortunately, off the top of my head. The Remnant broke away from a much older magazine called The Wanderer, which had been founded back in 1867. It was a German language, uh, Catholic German language, uh, weekly, uh, and eventually became English only, was run by the Matt family, and in fact you had two brothers, and I can't remember their names, I think Walter's the one that broke away, I can't, I'm getting this wrong, but you can look up on the internet. Um, the one stayed with the Wanderer, because they wanted to be more loyal to Vatican II and the Council, 
uh, but uh, the remnant becomes, as the title, as the title kind of indicates, those who were most alienated from uh, the post-conciliar church, who are most critical of it. And so they carry on, they'll, and they'll carry news of, they'll carry articles by uh, prominent figures in this very tiny movement. And to this day, actually, uh, if you go there, you can still find, they're still, they're still at it <laughs> uh, more than half a century later. So they're kind of in that uh, part of this to this day. You also have writers at the time, especially, who will decry changes in the, uh, uh, the post-conciliar church. People like Michel de Saint-Pierre, who's a French writer, um, writes a novel called The Suffering Priests, uh, which, again, deals with this sort of thing. Maybe more spectacularly, the, the novelist Tito Cassini writes a book uh, called La Tunica Stracciata, which means the torn tunic which sort of denounces the new liturgy, uh, think, sort of accuses it of being uh, a cause of the, the post-conciliar chaos. And Cassini, uh, again, it's a really critical book. In fact, it's so critical, but basically it's aimed at the, uh, not Annabelle Benini, who's merely the secretary, but the head of the concilium for implementing the liturgy, and in Cardinal Lacaro. Uh, in that, uh, in his book, he addresses this cardinal as, I think I have that right, yes, uh, he, he, um, addresses him as, I do I have this here? <laughs> yeah, he addresses uh, Cardinal Lacaro in his book as Luther Redivivus, <laughs> which means Luther revived <laughs> in Latin. So it's a real caustic attack on the new liturgy. And it causes a sensation in the Italian press. It's quoted everywhere. And eventually, it, get, I mean, it, it makes the uh, Cardinal so upset, he actually leaves Rome for a few weeks. He's so upset because the Pope won't do anything about it. Eventually, the Pope, in a private audience with the members of this commission, denounces Cassini, not by name, but, uh, but it, uh, it draws a lot of attention to this for the first time in Europe. So you do have people sort of going after this. You also have people in, uh, in, uh, in France arguing over the Ottaviani intervention. Uh, it's uh, published by Jean Mabiron in, in, in Terreur, and there's a response to it issued by a, a French priest uh, the, the, the next year, which again Mahdiron and his colleagues respond to. So you have this becoming uh, blown up as an, uh, in, uh, in the press outside of the channel we've already talked about. In terms of organizations, there's not really a lot of organizations that, that fuel this traditional sphere besides the one I've already mentioned. There's a few. Uh, that you'll get going again it's mostly people advocating for this but just a few things and i'll mention a few here because they're worth mentioning in terms of organizational support they don't have a lot of it the there is no traditionalist you know well well with one exception i'll talk about this in a second and that's in france but outside of france there's not a lot of institutions on the ground ready to support something like a movement in the church like this one of these is going to be a brazilian organization uh, called Tradition, Family, and Property, which is a political social organization founded in 1960 by a gentleman named Plinio Correa de Oliveira, a conservative Catholic out of the old Catholic action movement, uh, someone who's trying to, you know, take the social reign of Christ into the world, that type of thing. And it basically attempts to, to you know, get legislative protection to protect the traditional family, social arraignment, through, you know, through political, political initiatives, supporting political candidates, and educational stuff. And this organization is, is pretty, this is probably as political an organization that actually directly supports traditionalism in our, in a sense we're defining it here. Uh, he writes a manifesto, does the uh, Oliveira, which is basically kind of revolutionary. <laughs> it, literally, it's, it's like a, I can't remember the name of it, something like a, you know, Handbook for Counter-Revolutionaries or something like this, but it's explicitly monarchist in orientation. And I bring this up only to mention that this doesn't really have much, there's not really a, a huge overlap with this organization and the, the liturgy. Uh, there is on the fringes in the lay sector, more in the lay sector than the, uh, the clerical sector of the traditionalist movement. And I bring this up because one of the things people will accuse the traditionalist movement of is being a sort of connected with far-right political groups. And as far as I can tell, this is probably the most prominent one. And even they, they're, they're not necessarily that political. They do a lot of educational stuff, scouting, things like that. So, but they're in that milieu. Uh, De Oliveira was friendly with conservative prelates during the Second Vatican Council. So that's in that, in that vein. 
Another organization that comes out of this is uh, out of this post-conciliar period. That's part of this movement. I I call it. It would be the Roman Roman Forum, which was a nonprofit, which which was organized in 1968 by Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, professor at that point, a philosopher at uh, Fordham University in New York. And in particular, it was it was founded to defend, broadly speaking, Catholic doctrine and the Catholic culture. And if you don't know von Hildebrand, I mentioned him last time. Von Hildebrand was a great philosopher, convert to the faith from uh, Lutheranism, had been an opponent of, of the Nazis when he was in Germany before fleeing. And uh, we'll come back to him because he's really important uh, in the uh, history of this. Supports Uno Voce. Uh, even though he's a, definitely a man of the council, he doesn't have any problem with that for the most part. And this uh, Roman Forum, basically all it is, it begins as a series of lectures, it has changed its character. Uh, since the 1990s, it's expanded to include things like retreats, you know, week-long seminars. It's a little more expansive now. They're still, still ongoing. They just had their, their last one this past July. In, it usually takes place in Italy. It took place in Long Island this year. You can actually find the recordings, I think. YouTube, maybe? I don't know. They're, they're on there somewhere. You should definitely see the lectures. Some of them are very interesting. But it's still still around, providing intellectual weight to, I guess you could say, to traditionalism. And then finally, the French scene is very different. I'm only going to describe it briefly. There are more organizations already in place in France to support with something like this because you already had, you know, organizations like Cité Catholique, which was founded by Jean Ousset in the 19... I want to say 30s? I don't have it in my notes, but it's an older sort of conservative Catholic organization. Again, it comes out of that Action Francaise uh, milieu, and there's some of that counter-revolutionary stuff already in place there, where you do have, again, Intiraire, stuff like that, where there are already vehicles in place for something like this, and you do have new ones being founded in the post-conciliar era. One that's still prominent today uh, was called Mouvement de la Jeunesse Catholique de France, which was founded in 1970 by Christian Marquand and a few of his friends. It's, as the name uh, implies, is a, is a sort of uh, youth organization for traditional people like the traditional liturgy. So that's a form of the, uh, uh, involving this. And then also something like Credo, which is an organization founded by Michel de Saint-Pierre in 1974, which organized, I believe, is the originator of the organization, uh, 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 the organ, original organizer of the pilgrimages, uh, traditionalist pilgrimages to places like Chartres. And this is one of the other ways they have, what they do. They don't have a lot of organizations. They will organize pilgrimages to places like Walsingham in England, a former medieval site which was rebuilt in the 1960s. They'll organize pilgrimages. We'll have, you know, a traditional mass at the end of it and stuff like this to, you know, support each other this way spiritually as well as uh, in other terms. So you have these things all being part of this milieu. And then finally, this also, from the late 60s into early 70s, until things get some more sorted out, you're going to have people who are, I call them fellow travelers, they're not necessarily traditionalists, with maybe one exception, who are writing responses not just to the, the liturgical reforms, but also just to the, the post-conciliar chaos, who voice similar criticisms to a certain degree. Uh, people who are not, who are definitely not, most of them, uh, traditionalists. And I happen to be, at this point in my life, a connoisseur of post-conciliar screeds, <laughs> which I kind of like because they decry and they try to analyze what's going on in the post-conciliar period. Uh, people like Jacques Maritain. Jacques Maritain is definitely not a traditionalist, or definitely was not. And traditionalists don't like him <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And But he reacted badly to the sort of chaos uh, after Vatican II, partly because he was one of the sort of on the more progressive side of Vatican II, but he roundly condemned a lot of the things that went on after the Council. Wrote a book called *The Peasant of the Garonne*, in which, pardon my language, he was really pissed about what was going on. Uh, as did another person who was involved in the Council and supportive of it, but really didn't like where it went afterwards. Father Louis Boyer, a great uh, liturgical scholar convert from uh, from uh, uh, from Lutheranism as well, uh, wrote a book in 1969 called The Decomposition of Catholicism. His is really fun. Father Boyer had a really sharp tongue, and so he really lambasts a lot of what's going on in the, uh, the post-conciliar period. Uh, and then, 
1974, James Hitchcock, an American historian, publishes a book called Recovery of the Sacred, more specifically about the liturgy, in which he criticizes roundly the, the liturgical reformers and some of their excesses, even though he never goes in the direction that people like von Hildebrand will go in. And he actually publishes what I think are still some of the best critiques and analyses of what's going on in the immediate aftermath of the council. 1967, he publishes Trojan Horse and the City of God, and then 1973, The Devastated Vineyard. Definitely worth reading. You can find them floating around the internet. I won't dwell on them too much, but von Hildebrand was very critical of both post-conciliar reforms. He was a supporter of the council, obviously. He didn't have much criticism for that, but he does criticize the liturgy, and he is a, he is a supporter of the old right. His is a very measured, very scholarly, I mean, scholarly, it's actually very accessible, but it's a, a very informed critique in many ways of what's going on. And then finally, 1974, you even have someone like Jean Donyelu. Jean Donyelu is actually a bet noir of traditionalists for a lot of reasons. He's a um, long story, another, another, for another episode perhaps. He was one of the reformers whose work inspired Vatican II, fairly progressive, but he also turned against some of the craziness in the post-conciliar church. And before he died in 1974, he was publicly calling for the restoration of Latin in the new rite. Again, he didn't care for the old rite, but um, at that point, there were people who were saying, we know we get the need to get Latin back in the liturgy. It had been totally vernacularized by that point. And I must say, there even, and I'll come back to this a little bit, there are even criticisms of the new Catholic rite from non-Catholics. I'll give you a couple, mostly from Anglicans. Anglicans have a better appreciation for liturgy than most Protestants, and even from that angle, you have people sensing something wrong with the reforms. Most famously, if you know who the poet, W.H. Alden was, great poet, there's a little letter he wrote floating around the internet, you can find it and Google it, where he's actually criticizing all the new, because not just the Catholic Church, but the Episcopal Church, the Church of England is doing famously its own liturgical reforms in the late 1960s, and he basically trashes all the reforms, not the reforms, but their translations, especially he has very, he basically at one point says, I'm trying to remember from, from memory here, the poor Roman Catholics are left with an almost unspeakable liturgy <laughs> in terms of the English translation, because of course the, the new rite is in, of course in Latin, but it gets translated fairly poorly into to the vernacular in many places. And so this is also something people are criticizing. But there are also other Anglicans making criticisms as well. So it is not just alone that traditionalists are uh, in making criticisms, but they have the most far-reaching, which is why they become controversial. So to return to the narrative for a moment, now that we're getting back into it, what's Rome during, doing amidst all of this? I remember I talked about the chaos in the late 1960s. What is it doing? Well, Rome is trying to rein things in. They issue multiple instructions uh, for the implementation of the liturgy. In fact, they will keep issuing instructions all the way up to the 2000s for the instruction of the new liturgy uh, to try to get a, ha a handle on these sorts of things. But they also issue documents meant to curb abuses. Starting in 1969, they actually uh, sent a letter to the bishops of the world and asked them about uh, a practice that has gained momentum in the late 60s, which is communion in the hand. Which, uh, if you're wondering why this becomes a, an issue, this is an issue because, first of all, the reason why this gets started, it gets started, I believe, in Belgium, if I'm not mistaken. It starts there because there is this idea that in the in, uh, early church, this is this is the way things were done. And it was done, by the way, in various places, up until about the 8th or 9th century, then it died out. Eight, nine, eight or ninth, eight, in other words, 8 or 900s. And so under the justification of this idea, people started doing this. However, you had bishops complaining about it, so Rome issued a document saying this was an abuse and ordering people to stop it. And and uh, giving the bishops authority to stop it. As you're going to see, it's just ignored. And in fact, what's going to happen, as you're going to see, is that the bishops wind up seemingly losing control and eventually just sort of legalizing what had been known as an abuse. And the reason why, by the way, reason why, by, the reason why this is considered an abuse, of course, is because it seems to indicate people don't believe 
in the real presence. If you're handling the body and body of Christ like it's just something you handle, it seems irreverent. And so there's more breakdown in terms of ritual and gesture in terms of the liturgy. Uh, in 1970, the, the CDW, the Congregation for Divine Worship, issues another document, Liturgicae Instaurationis, Restoration of the, of the Liturgy. Again, uh, targeting abuses, targeting uh, all those things I've mentioned so far, people writing prayers, Eucharistic prayers, and putting them in the liturgy. Uh, targets, you can actually get a sense of what's going on, what's going wrong with the liturgical reforms from reading these documents, because they're trying to forbid these things, and it doesn't really work for a variety of reasons. But Liturgicae Instaurationis is 1970. Again, they're trying to rein in abuses as best they can. Again, it doesn't really work immediately. The worst abuses won't be curbed until the times of, of John Paul II. For a variety, for a reason, partly a reason I'll mention in a second. And then finally, in uh, 1970, another one in 1973, to bring us to the end of the period we're covering here to 1974, Immense Caritatis, which is on Eucharistic ministers, because of course there's great confusion about this, as well as everything else. And in that, that's the document where basically Rome accedes to the idea that, yeah, communion in the hand is okay. So, and this is pretty much the, 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 what happens in this period. A lot of things that were considered to be wrong become sort of um, through basically rampant disobedience accepted by Rome. And in fact, you're going to have uh, uh, Uno, Voce, Uno Voce complain about this, that bishops' conferences simply wind up legalizing abuses without trying to correct them. And in fact, to understand what's going on with the liturgical reform, one of the things we need to know in the background of this is the dynamic between Rome and the various national bishop com bishops' conferences. One of the things that's going on is that at Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, promoted this idea of collegiality, which in practice means having, at least according to the bishops, is having Rome get off their backs. <laughs> and in particular, it called for cooperation in terms of creation of national bishop con national bishops conferences so they could set policies for bishops in a single region. And so what happens is that Rome will, promote, will promulgate this, the, promulgated the new missile in 1970. It gave authority uh, for translating these things, the original Latin text of the new missile, to these bishops' conferences and gave them effectively their authority and to the individual bishops to implement the reforms. And this was kind of, this is a very important thing to understand because one of the things that's going to happen with the traditionalists is they're going to want, because Rome, as we're, well, we're going to see, Rome's a little ambiguous, but the bishops are almost going to immediately do two things. The permission they've gotten to use the vernacular will become mandatory. They, almost all of these bishop conferences basically say it's mandatory everywhere, and a lot of them will basically order uh, order the, the suppression of the old right. And, uh, and that's something to keep in mind, because what's at stake here is, well, I hate to split it in these terms, power. The, the bishops think they, they've gotten a little more power in their own diocese by getting Rome off their back with the liturgy, and this is one of the reasons why they're going to be so... And I put this, they're going to be so contemptuous of traditionalists. And yes, it's partly because traditionalists can be, we'll get to this in a moment, they can be crude, and yes, they can be kind of angry. Yes, that is true. Some of them, not all of them. But it's also because what looks like, you know, to the traditionalists, an exception to this rule, looks like to them going over their heads of the Pope to get an exception to have the Mass, which we'll come to in a moment. The old mass, I mean. So this is in the background of all this stuff. Still, and this still exists today, by the way. Uh, there are bishops who just see traditionalists as people who want to subvert their authority by going over their heads to Rome. Still a source of big tension. And in fact, you're going to have uh, traditionalists beginning to organize more and more because after 1970, of course, you're having the clock is beginning to tick because in 1970, the mass is supposed to start going into effect. And you're going to have... You know, uh, well, you're going to have increasingly shrill criticism of the new Mass and of Vatican II by traditionalists. Uh, uh, Annabelle Bonini will take particular exception to, uh, to criticisms because he's, of course, the leader of the new reform on that commission, the concilium that uh, is putting it into practice. And when uh, traditionalists have a big pilgrimage to Rome in 1970, 
Uh, he notes in his memoirs all the nasty things that they say, and they say some nasty things about the new missile. Um, they repeat a lot of the things that we've heard already from the a sort of higher level critique, theological critique of the new mass, but in more crude form. Uh, for example, in his memoirs, Bellini quotes uh, one of the organizers of the Rome pilgrimage, the traditionalist pilgrimage, which went to Rome on uh, the feast of feasts of Saint Peter and Saint Paul in 1970, and he quote this is his quote: one of the organizers, a Mrs. Gertner, supposedly said that the quote Montini mass is heretical, and then that the Pope regards us as rebels. That is not our fault. Unquote. And that's going to become increasingly common. Uh, unfortunately, you're going to get people saying things like this. Uh, and it is going to, it's going to, it's going to make things worse, obviously. Uh, not just Rome, but Paul VI, not just Annalba Bonini, but also Paul VI will take these criticisms of the new mass and of Vatican II. He sees them as essentially inseparable very, very personally. Uh, for Paul VI, these are the two main legacies of his, uh, of his pontificate and He'll actually be very sensitive, as will Annabelle Bonini, to criticisms like the one I just mentioned. A lot of traditionalists like to call the new mass Protestant. And this touches a sore point uh, with Annabelle Bonini and Paul VI. Because, I mentioned before, they wanted to have the new liturgy be adaptable to modern people, to modern times. They also had the idea that it should be more amenable to Protestants. The idea was, if you make it a little less, well, literally, a little less Catholic, it'll be appealing to to Protestants, literally. I mean, at least, well, at least according to um, one of Paul VI's friends, a writer named Jean Guitton, gave an interview much later in the 1990s, and he claimed that one of Paul VI's uh, purposes of the reform was to make the old mass less Catholic. Uh, it was too Catholic. He thought it was too forbidding to Protestants, and he wanted to, you know, take the hard edges off it, I guess, if you want to put it that way. And so, uh, and Bunini, you know, wrote in his memoirs, he thought that everything, everything should be removed from the old mass, from the liturgy, that was a barrier to Protestants. In other words, they thought of the liturgy as primarily being an evangelization tool. And, of course, that's not the way traditionalists see it. And this, of course, again, leads to some of these more um, imprudent uh, accusations among traditionalists. And it will be a harm to their cause for that reason. And in fact, this is uh, all the more reason for this, because everything, and to be fair to them and to Paul VI and to Rome at this point, everything is still in pretty much a lot of confusion, even in the early 1970s, even as Rome is trying to reign in the chaos. So much so that by 1973, Paul VI is actually kind of sort of publicly calling for uh, the restoration of Latin in the new Missal. He suggests at a general audience in 1973 in Rome that Gregorian chant could be restored for the ordinary parts of the liturgy. And the next year, he actually issues a book of chants called Jubilate Deo for the Mass. And so they're trying what they can. I'll talk more about Rome's limitations and problems next time, but they have them. They are at least doing some things. We'll judge a little better next time whether that's enough or not or where they're doing the right things. And so at the same time, you have this, again, the clock's ticking, as I mentioned before. I, I mentioned that Rome's promulgation in 1970, the new missile, meant that it was to go into effect the next year. And so you're going to have uh, groups like Una Voce scrambling to try to get some exemption from this, because what's going to happen is virtually almost immediately, even before the missile goes into effect officially, the Latin one, you know, bishops' conferences will try to get ahead of this uh, in order to ingratiate themselves with Rome. And so uh, you're going to have, in, um, in 1970, the French bishops declaring that, yes, uh, the old mass uh, is going to be suppressed. Uh, the only conditions will be, uh, uh, and uh, only be allowed for older priests only on two conditions. Uh, they have to get the permission of their ordinary, and they have to uh, celebrate it without a congregation. And in fact, uh, next year, 1971, the Congregation for Divine Worship, in other words, the curial department of the Curia, which deals with worship at that point, uh, issues a notification saying that, yes, the old rite is to be, basically that the old rite is not to be allowed, except under the basically those two, those two conditions, uh, if you get the permission of the ordinary and to have it done without a congregation. And so the rest of the bishops' conferences outside of France begin to take this idea and run with it. Uh, the next one to pronounce they're probably going to do this are the 
the uh, bishops of the UK in 1971, which leads to uh, a little bit of scrambling on the part of Latin mass groups. And so what happens is, and this is actually a good story that traditions like to tell, is that knowing this is coming in the UK in 19, end of 1971, the Latin mass society of the UK starts reaching out to uh, prominent Catholics, um, people like Graham Greene, the novelist, people like um, Ralph Rafe Richardson, the actor, who's also Catholic, a few other people like this, to sign a petition petitioning Paul VI for an exemption uh, from this, uh, from the, the coming ab uh, suppression of the old mass. And this is the, the story, if you haven't heard this, of the so-called English indult or the Agatha Christie indult. Because they wind up reaching out to people and getting the signatures of about, um, I don't know how many people here, a couple dozen people, maybe 30 people or so, of a petition which they submit to the, um, to the London Times in July 6, 1971, in which, and I should mention, the names of these people, the people who signed this petition, uh, most of them aren't Catholic. You have people from all sorts of walks of life, uh, novelists, mostly artist types. You have the uh, art historian, Kenneth Clark, if you know who that is. You'll have a couple of classical musicians, uh, 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 an opera singer, people like that. You will even have people who are from other, other Christian faiths, Christian denominations, even some people who are not uh, Christians at all, like Iris Murdoch, the, uh, the novelist and philosopher. And the, the, uh, the, the petition makes a plea, which they also have the Cardinal of Westminster deliver to Paul VI. And I want to read this because it's kind of a good, uh, kind of a good, you know, uh, it's an interesting story. And so the text of the appeals goes like this. If some senseless decree were to order the total or partial destruction of basilicas or cathedrals, then obviously it would be the educated, whatever their personal beliefs, who would rise up in horror to oppose such a possibility. Now the fact is that basilicas and cathedrals were built so as to celebrate a rite which, until a few months ago, constituted a living tradition. We are referring to the Roman Catholic Mass. Yet, according to the latest information in Rome, there was a plan to obliterate that Mass by the end of the current, current year. One of the axioms of contemporary publicity, religious as well as secular, is that modern men in general, and intellectuals in particular, have become intolerant of all forms of tradition and are anxious to suppress them and put something else in their place. But, like many other affirmations of our publicity machines, this action is false. As time goes by, educated people are in the vanguard where recognition of the value of tradition is concerned and are the first to raise alarm when it is threatened. We are not at this moment considering the religious or spiritual experience of millions of individuals. The right in question, in its magnificent Latin text, has also inspired a host of priceless achievements in the arts. Not only mystical works, but works by poets, philosophers, musicians, architects, painters, and sculptors in all countries and epics. Thus, it belongs to universal culture, as well as to churchmen and formal Christians. In the materialistic and technocratic civilization that is increasingly threatening the life of the mind and spirit in its original creative expression, the word, it seems particularly inhuman to deprive man of word forms in one of their most grandiose manifestations. The signatories of this appeal, which is entirely ecumenical and non-political, have been drawn from every branch of modern culture in Europe and elsewhere. They wish to call to the attention of the Holy See, the appalling responsibility it would incur in the history of the human spirit, were it, were it to refuse to allow the traditional mass to survive, even though the survival took place side by side with other liturgical forms. And in fact, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this indult gets its name because probably the most prominent uh, uh, sig uh, signatory of this uh, appeal was Dame Agatha Christie, the great uh, novelist, uh, mystery novelist. <clears throat> and so the story goes, when Cardinal Heenan of Westminster presented this petition to Paul VI, he was looking over the list of signatories, and he, when he came upon her name, he supposedly exclaimed, ah, Agatha Christie, and signed the document, granting an exception for small groups of people. Every, I won't go through it. It's a very, very limited exception, but they get it. And this uh, odd thing about this, uh, how many non-Catholics appreciated the significance of the old rite. In particular, I want to give praise, by the way, because I have friends in the Church of England or the Episcopal Church. Dame Agatha Christie, of course, was a, a, a pious Anglican. And there were even 
two bishops of the Church of England, yes, two Anglican bishops signed this document. So that's a funny twist and turn here that a couple of Anglicans uh, were uh, partly responsible for uh, getting, keeping the old mass from being suppressed. But it was a very, very tenuous foothold, despite all this. The next year, when they held their first mass in Westminster, 1972, the Latin Mass Society of the UK, over 2,000 people showed up in Westminster Cathedral to uh, witness this. Much to the consternation of Cardinal Heenan, as I, as I might mention, again, they thought of this as being an exception, they thought this was going to die away, they didn't expect so many people to show up, and they actually didn't like it, for reasons they'll come to in a moment. And in fact, as you get closer and closer to 1974, because it takes about three years for the missiles to be translated and then put into effect, but it's by 1974 when you finally get most Episcopal conferences uh, taking on board the new rite, and effectively beginning to um, instruct that the old rite be suppressed. And so what happens is by 1973, you start to get challenged to this by Una Voce. In particular, in 1973, the Swiss bishops of Switzerland basically order the suppression of the old mass. They issue a formal, I believe, a formal canonical challenge to this in 1973. At the same time, you have all these overtures going on in Rome to try to restore. They're thinking they might restore some Latin to the old missiles, you know. But can you really trust Rome to enforce that? They haven't enforced anything else. They don't know what to do. And so, Wunda uh, Voce at this point uh, comes to a turning point in their, in, their, uh, in their institutional life because in 1974, their uh, fifth annual congress, they basically make a decision. They basically say that they pretty much are not going to fight that battle anymore. They say they're not going to try primarily to shore up the new mass. They're going to focus their activities basically all on the old right. Their primary goal will become, from this point on, essentially trying to get the old right restored, trying to have it at least, again, uh, in certain circumstances so people can uh, worship, and to restore it to the parity they, they believe it deserves. And this is sort of agreed upon 1974, which is kind of the year, kind of a, you know, we're going to stop off here in a second, is, uh, I, I, again, in some ways a turning point, as you'll see, although it doesn't have anything to do with the Una Voce in particular, but it's momentous, um, because their relationship with Rome gets really rocky in the 1970s. In 1974, Eric VII will meet with the, uh, both the, the secretary for uh, the Congregation of the Divine Worship, James Knox, and the sostituto, the substitute, the second in command, if you like it, the Secretary of State, who are all, of course, um, on the side of the liturgical reform, and are dead set against basically having any exceptions for the old mass. When Knox meets, when, excuse me, when the seventh meets with Knox in 1974, he tells him point blank that the old mass is valid but illicit. And he also tells him that the English indult was a, quote, a source of embarrassment to other Episcopal conferences, and indicates them he thought the English bishops had exceeded their authority. In his mind, Rome, again, Rome, not necessarily Pope Paul VI, but Rome had already decided this question was settled, it was over, you people should just obey. And in fact, when he mentioned the English indult being a source of embarrassment to other Episcopal conferences, presumably he means it's embarrassing because it seems to go back on that deal, if you remember, that the Vatican basically struck with the Episcopal conferences, that, hey, we're going to let you, we're not going to look over your shoulder while you're implementing this reform. So it's upsetting, this idea they've gotten this indult to a lot of people, for reasons that aren't necessarily theological or even having to do with the liturgy per se. But one thing becomes clear is that Knox uh, despises Una Voce and all other traditionalists. Later in the decade, he will refer to, to, refer to them as, quote, disobedient people. And so, having gotten his meeting with Knox, which didn't go well, the Savantham also meets with the Sostituto, Monsignor Bellini. And I have to read this. Um, uh, Giovanni Benelli. That's actually not Monsignor. It's Archbishop. Excuse me. Excuse me. The esteemed Giovanni Benelli. And they have a three-hour meeting, more than three-hour meeting, in which they discuss these matters. And what the Savantham wants is for at least them to talk to him about what we can do to see if we can make any sort of provision for these people who want this whole mass. Now, 
after the meeting, they, uh, the Sathana tries to write a follow-up letter to Benelli, and I want to read something to you, because this is very important. We're going to end with this, to me. And it goes like this. This is, his, this is uh, the Sathana in his letter to Benelli, the uh, person he's trying to liaison with. I don't think he ever gets a meeting with uh, Paul VI while he's still alive, but um, this, is what, this is what he's recounting, what Benelli said to him in their meeting. And this is what he says. Remember, okay. So it says, Your Excellency has urged us to espouse as a matter of conscience the new forms of the Church's public cult, promulgated in the course of these last years by the Apostolic See and the Episcopal Conferences, under the authority of the Holy Father conferred by Christ. You have reminded us of our Lord's words, What you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Graze my sheep, confirm your brethren. All quotations from the Bible. And you insisted on the point that, for the government of the church, Christ had given to Peter and to his successors a charisma which is to be considered as a gift, both unique and indivisible. Although the character of irreformability only attaches to definitions promulgated ex cathedra in matters of faith and morals, the assent due to the acts of the sovereign pontiff ought equally to express itself in humble obedience to those, those of his acts which merely concern the discipline or other non-doctrinal aspects of the government of the church. For there also, you said, it is the same one, an indivisible charisma, which guarantees that all these acts cannot but be ordered towards the true and certain good of the church. Consequently, you could only consider as reckless and irreconcilable with a proper ecclesiology all demands or initiatives which implied that the utility of such and such an act of government, duly promulgated by the reigning pontiff or under his authority, could be a subject of discussion or even contestation. If that's a lot of words for you, let me, let me spell it out what the Sabbathism is describing as Benelli's position. Basically, he's saying that the Pope has a personal charisma, which all but guarantees that his, that his uh, you know, um, prudential decisions will all be good. And that anything that implies that he might have made a mistake is essentially disobedience. That's effectively what he's saying. At least as far as I read it and understand it. This is now just one other passage from this letter. This is, this is uh, de Savantham expressing his opinion of Benelli's position. We have felt in duty bound to express to your excellency our disquiet, faced with such an interpretation of the promise given to Peter and to his successors. In our humble opinion, the assistance of the Holy Ghost enjoyed by the popes and the councils ought not to be assimilated to a charisma, a personal gift, the impulsions of which only engage him or her, who is its direct object. It is true that the conciliar constitution, he means Vatican II's constitution, on divine revelation speaks of, quote, the sure gift of truth received by the bishops to the Episcopal succession. But there one is speaking only of the gift necessary to ensure that the bishops, when interpreting and announcing the revelation in accordance with the tradition of the church, may fully safeguard the depositum of the faith. The church has never taught, we believe, that in the acts which concern ecclesiastic discipline or government, popes or bishops are exempt from any error, or judgment, area of judgment, or from any default of will. Apart from this, this sure, apart from this sure gift of the truth, the very concept of a charismatic inspiration being attributable to all acts of papal government appears to us to be extremely dangerous. Would it not confer on each pope absolute power over all the institutions of the church, untrammeled by anything laid down by his predecessors, who, however, had acted under the same charismatic impulsion? Thus the liturgical rites, the rules of the monastic orders, even the structures of the church's hierarchy, as well as the entire positive law of the church, could they not at any moment be encroached upon by the reigning pope without his having to be mindful even of the most solemn confirmation thereof by one or several of his predecessors? You made only one condition, that that which in the bimillenary bimillennial uh, tradition of the church is fundamental and immutable be left intact. But here again, i.e., in defining that which in the tradition is fundamental and immutable, it will be once more be the reigning pope who, by virtue of his charisma, will, would alone have the last word. Now what he's basically saying is you're making the pope into an oracle who's basically whose whims decide all questions in the church. And that he's basically trying to correct uh, Archbishop Benelli might seem like an imprudent thing to do, which, by the way, de Savathem is right. <laughs> uh, Benelli's suggestion is completely wrong. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, in the 
the First Vatican Council's documents on the Pope's authority, which suggests anything like this. He is making, he is making way too strong a claim for uh, the Pope's authority, to be bluntly honest. Now, I know it's only part of his letter. I don't want to make this too long. I want to read you part of Benelli's response to the Sabbath, because basically what he's saying is, the Pope has complete authority, you have to obey. That's it. And this is his, I'll read just a couple of paragraphs, a few paragraphs of his response, just to give you where things stand with the lay part of this movement by 1974. I have duly received your long letter of 26th October. I have read it with pain. This is Monsignor Benelli talking to Eric uh, the Sabinthum. You reiterate unceasingly the same arguments to withhold, in effect, compliance with that which is clearly wanted by the Church and by the Holy Father himself. The loyal and trusting adoption by all the faithful of the Roman Rite of the Rite reformed under his authority in an application of the orientations laid down by the Council. The Sovereign Pontiff, for grave, reason, grave reasons of which he alone is judge, has thought that he should not dispense any longer from the obligation of such adoption, and that contrary custom may not be invoked in the specific context. What, then, is the true motive for the obstinacy with which you call for the maintenance of the old rite when the new one, used according to the established norms, allows the sacrifice of Christ to be celebrated with dignity, and in the last analysis in a very traditional manner? You insist on the fact that this does not imply a refusal of a liturgical reform, and even less of the Second Vatican Council. He's actually accusing him of questioning the Second Vatican Council. I, and this is him going on. I would hope so, but I must point out that the reference which you quote provides daily proof to the contrary. In any case, the will of the Holy Father, whose mission is to guide the whole, uh, whole of the people of God, is manifest. I must therefore observe with bitterness that after three, after the three and a half hours during which I endeavored to clarify matters with you, you have still understood or admitted that the habitual obedience to the Pope, that the habitual obedience to the Pope, even when he does not speak ex cathedra, is and has always been an elementary duty for all the sons of the Church. On this point, I cannot reopen any form of dialogue. I would merely invite you kindly to consult, in all humility and serenity, a good catechism approved by the legitimate ecclesiastical authority. So his, basically his message is, the Pope says this is so, any criticism is a criticism of him, the liturgical reform, and the Vatican Council, and anything else is just pure disobedience. Shut up and obey. Now, look at his answer to his letter, Benelli, Archbishop Benelli. At a time when there are theologians who are writing books denying not just papal infallibility, but the infallibility of the church as a whole, when there are priests and bishops and laymen openly defying the church's teaching on contraception and marriage, when there are people literally writing Eucharistic prayers and shoving them into liturgy, when their people are literally substituting uh, secular literature for scripture readings at the Mass, when all these things are going unpunished, you know what the real problem in 1974 is? People asking for the old right. There, my friends, is true disobedience. There are people who even implicitly want to get rid of Vatican II, want to get rid of the liturgical form. They're the real problem in the church. Now, if you get from my hint of my voice here that I think that's a bunch of insert your four-letter word, what you have just heard in that letter is a textbook case of what is sometimes claimed and is truly claimed to be a problem still in the church. That is clericalism. That is the complete contempt and utter despising of the faithful when they Humbly, and by the way, yes, there are some traditionalists who don't do this humbly. I get it. Eric de Saventham was not one of them. Perfectly courteous, an intelligent, educated person. And just for imagine for one second, by the way, imagine for one second, if a curial official like Archbishop Bonelli can treat someone like de Saventham this way, someone with a PhD, someone who is 
again, a learned person, successful in the world. What do you think would be the response of a bishop if an ordinary person in their diocese, say someone, that would be a, a badge, someone who's a bus driver, humbly just goes and asks, the, writes a letter to the bishop, please, can I, my mother's just died. Can I have the funeral mass in the old rite? What do you think he's going to say? He's going to say no. And I'm not making that up, by the way, just for emotional appeal. That is exactly what happens. People ask the bishops for this stuff, and they just shut them down. Why? Well, obviously, because they are disobedient people. Nothing more. Now, that's kind of a depressing place to stop in, in, in this episode, but we're going to stop here in 1974. Seems like things are coming to an end, perhaps, in 1974, except we have left out the other half of the story so far. We have left out, because you can't have a movement without the lady, but you also cannot have a traditionalist movement and save the old mass without clergy willing to risk this charge of disobedience who are also, of course, even more, you know, it's even a greater charge for them because they do take clergy more particular vows of obedience to their bishop. And I, I'm, by the way, I do not mean, I did not mean, by the way, to say that disobedience is great. Uh, anything I've said so far, don't let people say this. Um, but in a time of confusion, in a time of just raw confusion, I, I obviously object to the way the hierarchy has treated these people. But next time, we're going to find out the other half of the story, as I said, when a few handful of priests and bishops, a couple of bishops, more than one, yes, I know, the elephant in the room is the SSPX, but there's more than just Marcel Lefebvre involved in this, also sort of uh, basically help the old mass survive in the first 10 years or so after the council. So thank you guys for listening. Take care, all of you. May the uh, Holy Trinity bless you all wonderfully and keep you in God's grace and peace. See you next time.